my name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, welcome to episode 12 of the Brown and Black Podcast. I hope all of you are having a healthy and happy week. Our guest today is music composer Amanda Jones, who is the first African-American woman nominated in the score category for Apple TV's documentary series, Home. She's nominated for an Emmy. Uh, We'll be talking to her in just a bit. But before we do, Mike Sargent, what's going on? What's going on with you, Jack Rico? Well, um, I'll tell you this much, man. I've... I've been watching some interesting stuff. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you what I'm not watching. I'm not watching sports. I know Major League Baseball came back. I know the NBA came back. I think hockey came back, and I've never really watched hockey, to be honest with you. European soccer came back. The MLS came back. And ask me if I've seen one single game. Uh, I'm going to say No. <laughs> No, man. And dude, I I used to kind of live for those moments. Uh, I used to want to watch my Knicks, uh, the Giants, the Jets, you know, all the New York teams. But sports is back and I don't give a shit at all about sports. And I know it's I know other people are doing it, you know, but I think that's what separates people, you know, about sports. Sports is something of a distraction from a very stressful moment or somebody whose who's whole family is involved in sport. That's not, I've always watched sports when they're winning, when my team is winning. When they're losing, it's like, why am I going to waste my time? Can I not? Why do I need to watch a three-hour baseball game where they're going to lose when I could have used those three hours for something else? And I think this is something that happens when you get older. You know, the older you get, the the more appreciative you are of your time, because you know you don't have that much time left on this earth. So you want to make the best of it, and you want to take your prime years, you know, your 40s, and you want to enjoy it only, you want to enjoy it efficiently. I think that's that's sort of like my point. Clearly, I'm the wrong person to talk to about sports because I never watch sports. Why is it that you don't like sports, Mike? I- I'm uh, still trying to figure this out, dude. It's not that I don't like sports. I enjoy playing sports. Uh, I enjoy playing football, but I would never watch football. I think I've been to maybe one football game in my life. I've been to one baseball game in my life. And I don't even think I really went to a real basketball game. I think I went to see the Harlem Globetrotters when I was a kid. So, I, you know, sports is just something. It's interesting doing this show with you and, and everything that's been happening this year. I do see sports differently now. I see it as a distraction. I see it uh, uh, just like so many other things are a distraction. A song, W.A.P. There are a lot of distractions. I've come to realize we have a society completely built on distraction. Mm -hmm. Even Mm -hmm. essentially Quibi, that whole idea was you have a little extra time in between something. Let's fill it with some other distraction. Commuter distraction. Exactly. So it's we're looking to be distracted. But the only reason things have happened, things have changed is... Because we haven't been as distracted, again, since doing the show. It's, it's become something I've been kind of hyper aware of now, just how much we are looking to distract ourselves. And, and, I, and I get why it was constructed like that. If you really look at it, 
Distractions, why do distractions actually exist? What's at the root of a distraction? Money. No, I'm kidding. Well, that, I mean, that's one of the, definitely one of the components, but it's stress. Absolutely. So the whole system is built on capitalism. Employers need employees. We've spoken about this dozens of times on the show. It's been like the overarching theme of our podcast is this overproductivity within a capitalistic framework. And when you're overworked 15, 20 hours, and you're constantly in a toxic environment, distractions is what keeps you sane. That's why sports is probably one of the greatest escapist distractions, more than movies, more than TV shows. Sports, it's real. It's live. It's seeing the most super talent. It's people with superpowers. That's how I see athletes. You know, you're six, eight, you know, you can jump, you know, like nobody's business. Michael Jordan fly. They call him air. I mean, all of these things, these superhero qualities is what athletes hold. And it's what we uh, revere. You know, it goes back to Greek mythology. I understand the value of distraction when you're set up in a system like that. But then what? But then you have to question why do we have to be in a system like that? And I think what COVID has really done, it's it's sort of, it's taken off the veil off of our eyes, right? And it's made us and allowed us to think for ourselves that we don't have to be working 80 hours a week. Uh, we don't have to be overworked. We can actually love our family. We can hang out with our friends or whatever all this crap may be that the system has created for us. And hey, go to more to movies. Go buy more stuff. We'll pay you more money that we can have more distractions. Who does that ultimately compensate at the end of the day? Maybe I'll go a little further. I think that, you know, what is the need for distraction? Often it is to mask unhappiness. Right. It is to mask dissatisfaction. For me, I feel like I'm on the outside watching. And when I hear people like you, I've, you know, most of my friends are into sports, whatever it is, except for my hardcore nerd friends who would rather watch Star Trek. But you said gladiators. But I think there's something else there. And it never occurred to me till you were saying what you're saying. And that is a sports team. You want it to win. It represents you. Essentially, sports and, and athletes, top athletes, they're avatars. They're avatars for us, you know, and mm. we're, we're a society that is constantly looking to have an image. You know, are we winners if our team wins? Or do we come from a team of winners? What is our image now? Or are you a, come from a city where the team always loses and you always got to defend it because, <laughs> you, you know, because it's part of who you are, you know, the team represents you. So I get a lot of the connection and all of that from this point of view of not caring at all about sports. At the same time, on a larger scale, I do see it as a distraction. I see a lot of things that we do as distractions, and it's why things can go on so long. I mean, we're at this point where you and I talk about the news cycle. The news cycle of, of, of our tweets are our text to each other <laughs> is intense. And that's just so 
that that news cycle is intense. So the reality, the real news cycle, it's what's in the news. Why do I would challenge somebody to even remember who Hillary Clinton's running mate was? Oh, uh, uh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. What was his name? You know, uh, you'd have to like, oh, wait, oh my uh, god, that's right. Exactly. Wow, I can't so even remember that dude's you name. You can't even remember that dude's name. Why? Because he's not in the news. He's not important anymore. He's you've got plenty of other distractions now. We're hearing about Kamala Harris. It's so so that's kind of that's how we're built. There's always the next thing. What's the next thing? And 100,000 people are presumed dead. And in other stories, a cat, you know, and that's how our lives are. Even doing TV for me changed my perception of not only what people watch, because I've always been a viewer, but being on the other side of TV, you realize how you have to present things. Everything's got to be presented in the most Mm -hmm. truncated, edited, concentrated, grab your attention way. Don't bury the lead. You're talking about... Uh, the news cycle. And it just reminds me of this article that I think I shared with you via text on Ariana Picari. Ariana Picari, for those of you who know, uh, was a MSNBC producer that recently quit. She just flat out quit MSNBC because she was so sick of the toxicity of the way the news was being presented, which is kind of one of the one of the, the tenets of our podcast, of the Brown and Black podcast, is to be able to talk truthfully, of what should be covered and what isn't being covered in the mainstream media. And she actually talked about it. She, she actually answered why the news is the way you see it, why it's set up like that. And when I read the article, essentially, here's what she says. She says, listen, I'm quitting because I think that, and I, I truly believe after being in it for many years, that the broadcast and cable news industry is inherently broken because it's predicated on how a topic or guest would rate. And when you create editorial based on ratings or how a contributor or how a topic sells, then you're going to always go to the lowest common denominator, the thing that people most consume in. The last four years, what is the thing that people most like to consume? Trump. Whether it's on the right or on the left. The left bashes, the right praises. And that bashing, that collision of ideologies is what news is reflecting. But, for example, she was talking about how instead of talking about the science of COVID, we're talking about how Trump talked about COVID. How is that pushing the editorial and the news coverage forward. It is the responsibility of all journalistic institutions to cover the things that help the community. I cut the cord about two years ago. So I haven't watched CNN. I haven't watched MSNBC. I read stuff. But I don't watch the TV and the opinions and the pundits anymore. I just can't anymore. And my mind's being contaminated And so when she kind of like went out and said, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to go into independent journalism. Mike, what is this podcast? It's independent journalism. And we're curating what we think should be curated as opposed to what rates better and what doesn't. 
There are a few things that Trump knows, and he knows it better than many, many politicians. Clearly, that's how he got to be where he is. And that's how it is. Hillary spent twice the amount of money on her campaign right. than Trump did because Trump knew he didn't have to. There's a bill being passed that's awful, that's going to kill people. It's going to be destructive. It's going to be one of the worst things that could happen. He's going to dismantle the EPA. He's going to get rid of the UN. Like nobody even blinks. He gets <laughs> rid of the UN. Nobody even blinks. You know why? Because he said something incendiary that day. He tweeted something stupid. He did a misspell. He did a mispronunciation. And that's the fault of the media and to cover the BS. That. The, of this. Yes. It's the same way that they're doing with Kanye West. Why are you giving him a platform when he obviously has a mental illness that should be treated as such? Listen, the fact that he even got 2% of the vote in, in whatever poll they did is ridiculous. You know, don't even get me going. Because <laughs> I, I, I read an article that was talking about Kanye and they were talking in the article about how 79% of black voters disapprove of Trump. And I'm like, well, who the fuck are those 21%? <laughs> people who are they well i told you what it is yeah i, know, I said to you that those 21 percent are the herman Keynes of the world which are the people yeah, yeah. that it it's not about trump and it's not about supporting the republic it's not about it's not about ideology it's about caste mm-hmm. it's that there's certain african-americans like latinos and like anybody else that view the world more from a caste point of view, which is what Isabel wilkerson was talking about in her new book caste if you can work yourself out of a, a out of a problem Right. If you can act yourself out of a problem, that's class. And if you can't, that's caste. And I think that those 21 percent might see the other African-Americans and even some of these protesters as a caste issue, like you're inferior. And I don't want to be associated to that. Now, is that a white thing? I I have to say I agree because one of the other things that's that's be, I've become aware of I, I was aware of it on some level but I've really are doing the show has made me keenly aware of the animosity and hatred a lot of Latinos have towards blacks and and it is a caste thing it's it's not like you know they they want to reject let's just say color of their own skin but it it, it is buying into something that is false. That is constructed. An illusion. That is, Absolutely. Why do you want to have a population that is uneducated, that can barely make ends meet, that will make more money from a pandemic unemployment than they can for a living? And now a, a government that doesn't even want to continue that, that would rather plunge us into a destroyed economy, homelessness, craziness in the midst of all this unrest with the police. I mean, the elements that we have right now are like a recipe for the destruction of a civilization. That's the recipe we it's have. It's a now. civil war that we're going through, and it's only going to get worse, man. But but it's even worse than a civil war because on a global scale, what is the American dollar going to be worth right now? What country can you even tell me? What country you can travel to right now as an American? What country can you even travel to? Finland. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you got you to check the map for that. They may, so it's sort of like we positioned ourselves in such a way. Civil war is bad enough, but we've also positioned ourselves that you've heard me say it here on the show that what we do better in America than anything else is propaganda. We're masters and we're so good that we, we believe our own propaganda. We can no longer consider ourselves, position ourselves on the world stage as the humanitarian police or, or the, the, you know, the, the, the fount of democracy and all the things that we used to 
position ourselves as, uh, you know, we're not, we're far from the smartest nation. We're far from the most Dude, we're one of nation. the most stupid far- nations on the planet, we're, man. We literally are the most stupid nation on the planet right now. And so much other countries are like, It's no, embarrassing. No, 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 no. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, I was in I was uh, in Portugal when Trump won the nomination, and obviously, you know the the, the whole and campaign. Is, and this is long. This is four or five years ago. Yeah, after we had Obama and you know that level of class and cachet, and and they were they were just laughing at us. He goes, "What what happened to America?" It was more like they were stunned. How could you guys pick someone like that? And that is part of the shame that, you know, as a traveler outside of the United States, as an American, is the one that you have to carry. Dude, we used to be the uh, the ugly American. Now we're the stupid American. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anybody on the world stage can call us that because for us to be where we are and it hasn't even got as bad as it's going to get. We're, we're just and, and we're not doing anything to change. How's about we jump into the news, Mike? Joe Biden has officially picked his vice president, Kamala Harris. Thoughts? I feel like Kamala Harris is... She's got an enormous amount of qualities. You know, she's great. She's a she's got, you know, she's a prosecutor. She's she's she doesn't back down. She's been around. You know, she's 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 had both political power, intellectual power and even physical beauty, which is a power in our society. So she's had all those things at her disposal and use them well. But she's a black woman. She she's the epitome of of what. White men see as the angry black woman to an educated base and to the people who clearly would vote for someone like that. You know, it's it's a win win. But I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about other people, people who don't embrace everything that Kamala Harris is. She represents a lot of things besides being female, besides being black, besides infiltrating the boys club. I wonder, because she's not, let's just say, the most charismatic. I think she's amazing. But I don't think she's she. You don't think she's com- charismatic? Uh, I don't. Think I don't think Hillary Clinton is charismatic. I don't think that Warren is charismatic. I think she's charismatic compared to them. Obviously, okay. All right. Let's. You know, Hillary Clinton's like the opposite of charismatic. But what will she bring to Biden? Clearly, as I've watched this develop, she's brought interest because Biden. I don't want to say sleepy. But Biden's not doesn't have the most energized of all possible campaigns, and he's just not the most energized of all possible candidates. He's he's an almost safe choice for America. Comparing him to Trump is one thing, but if there were other people, other qualified candidates, non-Trump candidates running, I don't know how well he would do for all that he represents. Mm-hmm. You know, for him to say, I'm going to pick a female of color was wise. Kamala Harris brings a lot to the table. I've become more hopeful. I am not optimistic, but I've become Ooh, more hopeful. I've become more hopeful because I've seen, I think social media is a gauge of our, our populace. But I also know who I follow on social media and the outlets I follow and, and the people I follow are going to have a point of view. Converting those who are already converted is not the issue. The issue for me was, will she sway any people? Because mm. it, there's this whole movement, and I've seen this a lot with with both whites and Latinos who are quote unquote liberal, uh, more with Latinos who are not liberal. 
which is a whole other conversation that I don't understand. But I've seen this whole like, well, she's, you know, she's just a top cop. Well, she's this. She put all a whole lot of people of color, men of color in jail. Well, she's Obama deported so many immigrants and Latinos out of this country, yet he's still revered. So I don't want to hear it. Well, you you know, you know, I don't want to hear a friend of mine on Facebook put up uh, a post and I, I believe it was about Kamala Harris and this friend of his who I don't know, a Latino man put up, oh, well, you'd rather vote for Pedo Joe. You know, and I look, I went to his page and I looked at it and I looked at his page. And, I'm and he was at a this, bot. <laughs> no, no, he's not. No, he's a, he's a Latino man. He's a Latino man, white girl from the whole thing. And, and I'm looking at his, his page. And of course, he's all this right wing stuff. But what was really disturbing was all this stuff about lock and load and showing videos of, of, of all kinds of veiled threats. Not even veiled. Obvious threats to people of color. If they come near me, lock and load. If it's this time, da da da. All that kind of stuff. It sounded and, like and Rambo. I, you know, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I wonder, does she bring more? Or does is will she turn people off more? That was my concern. So let me tell you my opinion in particular. I'm optimistic, unlike you. I, I, I'm optimistic. She is one of the rising stars since the early 2000s in the Democratic Party. She's Indian American, black American. She I believe it's like the second woman to ever get into the Senate. She is a star. She's eloquent. She fights for what she believes is true, but she does it with a bite. And here's a comparison between two types of women. Hillary Clinton, and unfortunately, I have to put in here Michelle Obama. When Michelle Obama said, When they go low, we go high. And there was a certain part, I go, you can't bring a knife to a gun party. You just can't. You gotta fight people at their same level In America, maybe in a different country, it's like that. But here, it's a sign of weakness. Middle America didn't vote for Trump because of his political uh, ideas. He's not the reason we all woke up. The country was already like that. This is pure, unadulterated, unmitigated, uncensored, primal hate. Animalistic hate. Bred in humans, they see weakness, goodness, respect, honesty, moral values as weakness. This whole thing about exposing masks, that's not about, oh, you know, I don't believe in science. It's about weakness. Absolutely. You see them. You see them in the, the Kevins. They're going, you're all pussies. You're a bunch of pussies. You're wearing them. You're pussies. That hate is about to come after her. And when you can fuel the right, the idea is like, wait, we're about to have a black person again in office and a woman to boot a black woman. Oh, here we go. So let me read this to you because I thought it was really interesting how black women feel about Kamala Harris. Historically, the attacks on women and particularly black women are well documented. The likelihood that Harris will be subject to attacks rooted in sexism, misogyny is real. But she's not worried. It's nothing she hasn't dealt with before. But second of all, she has got an army of the most ferocious black women backing her. The people who are going to come at her with their kitchen knives ain't got nothing on us. And this was by a group of black women. And I'm like, you know, it's interesting. Let's look at the whites and the blacks in America, like deeply, deeply. Black women 
are about equality. Black people overall, the African-American community is about equality. That's what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their freedom to be just like the freedom that whites have. What is the, what is the white sensibility in America? Fear. They're afraid of losing the power they've been established by their ancestors for the last 400 years. And they don't want to let that hierarchy go. And they're starting to notice that it's slipping away slowly and gradually. And when Obama became president, these dudes had a field day. By the way, they were also caught off guard. They're like, how did he win? And so for the last eight years, they've been amassing. They've been intellectualizing themselves. They've been, they've been arming their armies with all types of metaphorical weapons. So this collision is going to be absolutely insanity. It's going to be a blitzkrieg of ideologies and verbal abuse and fights and struggles. And I don't know who's going to end up being a winner because, you know, we talked about how the Confederacy lost the war. Well, did they really? They won the American mindset. In my opinion, the American mindset has always been that. But I agree with everything you said. This is just going to polarize the opposition even more. The, the Republicans, the one thing I can give them credit for is they, they, they think ahead. They have outmaneuvered the Democrats many times. You know, you saw the documentary uh, Slay the Dragon. So when it comes to gerrymandering, they've outmaneuvered them. When it comes to fundraising at this point, we, we've seen them outmaneuver. Though Clinton won, uh, raised $1.2 you know, the, we, don't, we don't have any Clintons. Right? Yo, was that thunder? You know? That was thunder. That was, <laughs> wow, I could hear it through here, man. <laughs> I know, it sounds like a sound effect. It sounded like a nuclear bomb, man. Exactly. Wow. It's emphasis for what I'm saying. And the Democrats. But, but so I, I think in a, in a large sense, what they're doing, even though it's getting attention, people don't realize exactly how insidious it is and what they're doing to the full extent. And by the time, it, it's really almost already too late because they put this in motion a while ago, what they're doing to, to destroy the postal system and how they're attacking the integrity of our voting system and discouraging people to vote and then clearly have all these plans. I mean, we're going to see multiple prongs of voter suppression going on. The biggest one is what they're doing to the post office, and that's huge. During a pandemic, it's, it is the linchpin of how they will be able to manipulate this election because, no, they've got so much in place. If there are... Food lines, let's say, people homeless, people suffering, people out there. Who Who's going to be in control? That's a country that's ripe for the kind of control you want. You test it out in a place like Portland. You, you have a, a setup where the opposition is saying, get rid of the police. And you have a wealthy class that, that that's what they rely on, whether they're white or black. I mean, that, I guess that's that 21%. What have you got? Again, you've got this recipe, like you said, for civil war, but deeper than any civil war we've ever had. We have mm -hmm. a recipe to, to set ourselves up like any third world country with right. a dictator. Because the thing is that the Confederates in the North, they fought not necessarily out of ideology. That was all about money. That was all about labor. They fought for labor. That was all profits and economics. This time around, it's about identity, it's about culture, it's about hierarchy. Again, you're absolutely correct, but here's the other interesting dichotomy. In a time where there are more black women in positions of power in the government than ever before, 
the the most uh, destructive things are happening against them. You know what you said, these black women that are there and that will support her. The question I have is, are there enough of them? Will they have enough allies? They can't do it on their own. They are, they're been the most reliable part of, of the Democratic vote, more reliable than men, black women, as, mm-hmm. as part of the Democratic voting base. But are they big enough to change things? Will they have enough influence? Will all those moms, are there more moms for BLM? Then there are Karens and Kevins. So this is like a mathematical equation here. It's mathematical, but also you have to factor in. Both sides have been corrupt. You know, the one thing Trump knows is that, sure, there's always been fake news. News has gotten faker and faker and faker over the Oh, the level of disinformation. And you sent me that article about how disinformation is heading towards African-Americans and Latinos. Absolutely. And so you know what I'm talking about. So that being said, he can use that truth It's to his disadvantage and to his advantage at the same time. He'll say something that's true, even though he's guilty of it. And that's been his M.O. So for me, I think it's interesting that as black women are coming to prominence, we're seeing their stories, they're being nominated for Emmys, they're in positions of power in the government. We have one who's going to be running for vice president. But at the same time, we have the largest coalition, like you said, of hate against that. It's the future. The future is clearly a country of color. And this is what they're fighting for. Of course. They don't want to lose that. And unfortunately, America, even though the Constitution is a bit of a scam in terms of, you know, uh, we the people, it's not we, it's white the people. Uh, and everybody else is here just for work, you know, for labor. Uh, that's how this country became the economic superpower that it is. Free labor. Absolutely. We're, we're, Absolutely. We're, we're heading in a different direction where that labor now wants a piece of the action. huge movie soundtrack fan so i've i know all my favorite composers but you literally can count on one hand the amount of female composers and those who are african-american to boot that's even less that's an even smaller number so it's it's been very hard for women to break into film scoring television scoring and women of color uh, you couldn't even name one so for us to have who we have on the show in my opinion is it's historical what she's doing in a year, a history-making year, what her nomination is historical. Amanda Jones, welcome to the Brown and Black podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You've been nominated for the uh, 72nd Emmy Awards in the Outstanding Music Composition for a Documentary Series or Special for Original Dramatic Score. These these things really long. But congratulations. You were nominated for the episode Maine in the Apple TV Plus series, Home. And kind of wanted to just ask you right off the bat, you know, you are the first black woman to be nominated in this category. Did you ever question why there weren't African-American female composers being nominated at the Emmys early in your career? So, for example, I used to go to Broadway shows and I used to do this. And I never saw a person of color in the times that I went. So for you and your industry, was that something you noticed? And what does this significance mean for you? It's a lot of things at once. So 
I mean, yeah, I feel like when you enter into a field, um, whatever that may be, and you're kind of like the only minority, it's, it's definitely jarring and you have to have that armor on every day to kind of navigate that space. But, um, you just get like used to it. You just put the blinders on and you keep your goals, you know, set. And you're like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing. I don't care. Every time I walk into a room, everyone looks at me like I'm too young or look like an alien or I'm too black or too female. I don't really know. But um, yeah, you just kind of stay focused and just, you know, get the job done and do really great work um, because I feel like you have the weight of just like your entire race. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going like, oh yeah, I'm exemplary. And so is everyone else. <laughs> Where am I on a left? Just kidding. Um, so it's a lot to handle. It's easy to like laugh about and it's like, it's crazy, but I mean, yeah, the numbers are staggering, less than a percent or zero percent year for year POC females, whether it's like top 200 theatrical or television series, it's getting better, but there's a lot of work to be done. But yeah, in terms of the significance for this Emmy nomination, it's pretty crazy. I obviously didn't plan this. <laughs> it's like twofold. It's bittersweet. A, this is an amazing experience, but B, it's like, no, there needs to be more. You know, I can't wait to like pull up more women, more women of color. Like it's just like, people I bring into my studios, uh, a lot of people of color working for me. So just like bringing them up and just like, kind of Oh, that's great. We're like the door is just wide open for the next generation of composers. So it's more normalized. <laughs> yeah. Now, first of all, I know when you were writing, you were thinking, this is my Emmy. This, I'm, 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 <laughs> she knew, she knew that there was, that's it. I'm getting an Emmy. <laughs> I want to talk from the creative side a little bit. Is your approach to documentary and narrative the same? And maybe how do they feed each other? How do they help each other in terms of what you write? So, yeah, I mean, the approach is always kind of similar in terms of like the process, you know, having those creative conversations with, you know, the studios and the creative executives. And so I think those are like the first conversations you have just to kind of establish like the sonic definitions, template, atmosphere. You kind of have these like really important chats about like, what kind of music do you like? What kind of music do you envision these characters listening to or experiencing or is the setting like a character? And so once we kind of define our musical language, then we can like move forward sure-footedly with like a palette that makes sense. And so for home specifically, you know, it was really exciting because it was kind of more of like a band instrumentation. So we have like drums and analog synths and guitars and I'm using my voice as a texture. And my talking voice is very different from my singing voice, by the way.
And so, yeah, there's bass and I brought in some violinists and it's, it was so much fun. And I felt like I was creating an album for that episode. Oh, wow. um, mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. I feel like that's probably one of the more unique projects I've worked on because I feel like with TV series or other documentaries, I feel like I'm kind of just creating like a soundscape that kind of exists. But I feel like maybe because, you know, Apple is very like Apple music minded, they, they knew that the music couldn't stand alone on its own. And I feel like they were pushing for the music to kind of like each cue is very heavy with its like instrumentation and its feeling and its completeness. I feel like it's a great as a standalone soundtrack, but also it like really supports what's happening for picture. So, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so Amanda, you know, um, I'm brown. Uh, Mike is black. Uh, you're black. What is the color of your music? Oh, interesting. You know, I feel like I've always, uh, I guess just a, one, it's black, <laughs> but I feel like that's who I am. Cause I feel like my whole life is just kind of like debunking stereotypes. So, um, that aren't even like relevant, like black people have been playing guitar forever. And so, uh, I'm a guitarist and, um, I'm excited to see more, you know, black people, you know, playing guitar and more contemporary, like popular music and kind of just debunking that myth. Anyways, um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a lifetime of influence I mean, uh, that's kind of crafted the sound and the sounds I make today. And I grew up listening to Temptations like Motown, a lot of that, um, Wilson Pickett, and my mom's a little bit younger than my dad, so a lot of Whitney Houston, Tony Braxton. <laughs> and it's just like all these things that are just kind of like, you know, meddling together than all the bands that I've kind of discovered on my own, like Hendrix and Black Sabbath, and a lot of classic rock and a lot of like, kind of like noisy Japanese rock. <laughs> That's really fun too. It's kind of like a swirling palette. And, you know, I feel like as a black woman, you know, that's my lens and I'm excited to like, you know, create music that, you know, deviates from the norm. I do create like, you know, hip hop inspired stuff for yeah. certain scores, Black Lady Sketch Show and 20s. Um, and on Cherish the Day, it was very like soulful, um, kind of like LA vibes. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I've just like, I love popping around. I feel like I think it's really important that, you know, people don't see someone's race or ethnicity and like automatically think that they would listen to a certain type of music or perform a certain type of music or have an attitude towards something. Um, I look forward to the day where we're all kind of individuals that people want to like learn about us individually. Yeah. Good <laughs> like, luck with that. What are you into? <laughs> <laughs> it's take a really long time. I'll probably be dead. <laughs> but I don't know, it's just an idealist. The easiest way of saying it is yes, I create black music because I'm a black woman. If you think this sounds like black music, cool. And if you don't, that's cool too. What's the best part of what you do? What feeds your soul the best about what you do as, as an artist? I think the best part is kind of arriving at this place where I am now. From where I grew up, I grew up on the East Coast originally. I was born in Maryland, lived in DC, grew up in Virginia. <laughs> and, um, you know, my family's in healthcare. And so, you know, no one really knew anyone that was like a musician, like a successful musician. So I feel like kind of defying that expectation of, you know, pursuing a, like a career in the arts, sticking to my terms of how I want to be happy and what I'm doing for my for a living and livelihood. So I feel like that's the most fulfilling thing for me, just kind of continue to defy, <laughs> whether it's like familial expectation or cultural expectation, 
of just to like craft a life for myself that I envision for myself like so specifically and I see it so clearly even if it hasn't existed before <laughs> for other people that look like me and I think that's really important for everyone should just do that they just should just like keep if you can <laughs> just keep chipping away at like a life that you envision for yourself and it's, it's like you know it's it's challenging but it's it's worth it if you can arrive at that place so that's like what feeds me <laughs> the fact that I like I stuck to my own internal compass there's not that many black female composers in the industry. Could you share with us some of those women that yeah. have made the industry what it is today that maybe might be underappreciated and that don't have, let's say, the marketing, the promotion, or the word of mouth uh, to be in the position that you are in? Yeah, um, yeah. So we have Catherine Bostic. She's absolutely incredible. We have Tamar, I'm blanking on her last name, but she did Mudbound. She is awesome. She also had a band previously that was incredible. There's also up and coming person. We're like the same age, Dara Taylor. She works with Christoph Beck and she is, I'm so impressed with all these women. <laughs> these are all black women. We have Ayana Jacobs L and I should have made a list, <laughs> but the list goes on. Like, there's so many black women that are so excited. Oh, there's Emily Sankofa, Tara Stinson. There's just so many brilliant black women that are just kicking ass and deserve so much recognition. Yeah, Sassy Black is another one I can think of. Catherine Harris, she was in The Satisfaction and she's like doing more scoring now. So, well, that's great. That's a lot. That's that's more than what most people hear. So it's great yeah. to know that that they're there and that hopefully they'll be nominated in the in the years to come. Amanda, did you ever uh, wanted to go out on your own and kind of be a pop star, you know, the way Kelly Clarkson is American <laughs> Idol, uh, you know, because music today is commercialized in such a way that you have to be uh, sexy. I mean, if you just listen to the new Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion song, WAP, it's just absolutely insane uh, to even listen to those lyrics. Wanted to get your thoughts on what you think contemporary music is like, why you haven't pursued the contemporary music path that has allowed you to, to kind of stay in this particular, uh, I guess, genre of music. Previously, I was performing. I, had a, I have an original band. <laughs> I think I'm just too, like, uh, I don't know, I feel very, like, specific artistically, which is a great for any artist. Um, I feel like my artistic self doesn't really gel with, like, the, pop, like the shiny pop-pop thing <laughs> I like uh, and that's like a very specific box that people fit into and so what I love about the kind of music I make for myself my band it's kind of like experimental rock music kind of soundscapey kind of explosions in the sky slash pixies <laughs> um, I get to just be myself and you know aesthetics is another big component of pop music so I feel like I just uh, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of challenging. Like, if I could be like a Bjork or something, that would be like mm, the best yeah. thing ever. <laughs> the pop music industry is very, very specific, and I feel like only certain people can kind of get in, <laughs> and it's very much like a machine, and I feel like a lot of compromise on who you are as a person, potentially, unless that's who you are, and you're like, I want to be a pop star, and like, all that stuff aligns with your morals. <laughs> but um for me it's like uh yeah there's like too many boxes to check that makes it difficult for me to like be part of that system and i think it's like aesthetics and then it's like songwriting and all these things that 
people really want to see from these pop idols. And I'm like, "Uh, I'd rather just kind of be a little more chill and just create like fun, weird music that works for myself or for film and TV. You can be more long form and experimental and weird when it comes to film scoring. So that I kind of like my sensibilities, like lend itself to that. Like pop songs seem to be like, all right, the song's done. But for me, I'm like, oh, what if there's like this other thing that happens? I think if I paired up with like a producer, we could create something really fun um weird oh you're here um, you're first (laughs) i know (laughs) um because i love like the production and like uh this is america um and so that was like a while ago and so um i think yeah i don't know i think there could be something a magical collaboration in the future um that can like curtail my meandering mind into like a pop structure Mm. yeah so we'll see (laughs) it's funny that you say that and kind of building on that and what jack just asked you because i wanted to ask you uh it's interesting because you love the freedom and the experimentation of this but your first emmy nomination was when you you had to create within almost constraints like you said they wanted it to be a little more a standalone so it's a it's a different turn for you, and it's yielded this reward. What what are your thoughts on coming out of your comfort zone a bit and winning acknowledgement? Yeah, the, what's interesting about the home score is it made me kind of tap into the mindset of when you're creating an album, as opposed to like when you're writing for a TV series. So that's something I hadn't done for like a bit, like maybe two years. Um, and so that's a, a unique type of challenge where you're challenging yourself on the, the perfection of like how the different songs relate to each other. And you kind of want it to be like a concept. I love concept albums. Yeah, <laughs> so like, me too. It's kind Same of here. like, I was kind of creating that with like the home score also. So yeah, that was something that kind of like put me back in a vulnerable place where I was like feeling more like my musician, like band self as opposed to like a composer with like a very, very strict brief. Um, I've been fortunate enough to like collaborate with some incredible artists that, you know, value my opinions and I value theirs and we just kind of like gel. The home thing kind of brought me back to like basics in some way in terms of like it brought me back to like kind of creating music for like a band, which is really cool. And that was challenging to be like, like go back into that sort of zone. And so that was nice. That was like refreshing. and I. I kind of want to perform these songs like live. Oh wow! <laughs> they're really great. You you make yeah, it. Yeah, some of them are really nice. Yeah, but Apple owns everything. <laughs> has the pandemic affected the way you create music? You know, so my workflow is exactly the same as if it wasn't a pandemic. I work from home. Um, I guess the biggest thing is not having that foil 
to like these long hours to then hanging out with friends. Like I miss just having that release and experiencing life and being free and having that as like a space for me just to like relax and not think about work. So I've actually been very, very busy and very creative. Our house is basically like a music house. So we just, we're just always like writing and creating stuff. And yeah, so that hasn't really been affected. I mean, it was in the beginning a little bit because it was, all the news was so depressing. <laughs> Right. But then you just kind of get into a rhythm of just like, okay, this is like new normal and deadlines still exist. <laughs> <laughs> so got to get it together and just uh, start turning stuff out. We actually moved to a larger place with a huge garden in the backyard because we needed to uh, like quarantine in a place that was more of a sanctuary. <laughs> right, right. Because it was getting crazy. Uh, we were in an apartment, so we're now renting a house. Because it's like, no, nice. this is going to go on for a while. <laughs> For me, the last question would be, uh, Amanda, is do you think that there should be uh, gender-free awards moving forward at the Emmys and at any award show? Oh, interesting. Like, just Best Actor? Is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, like, so we have Best Actress, Best Actor. Should we come to a point where gender really isn't a label uh, at these award shows? And yes, exactly. And men and women should yeah, just be I the think... same exact category? Yeah, I think so. I think eventually. Um, I think... The thing about certain categories is that it gives space for certain people. So, for example, the category that I've been nominated in, it's only existed for two years. And there was someone that really advocated. They realized, because there's two other women that are nominated in this category, which is a huge deal. And um, someone realized if you create a doc music category, a lot of women are doing docs. They'll likely have the opportunity to get nominated. So... Someone came up with this category to create a space because there was like a likelihood of more women to get nominated. So that was like the incentive. It doesn't say like, you know, it doesn't genderize it, but that was like the motivation. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like we're not at a place yet in the world <laughs> where everyone's equal. And so if you can make spaces for people that gives them recognition and that recognition helps them get paid more and just more, more of everything, more of the things they deserve, I think it's okay. Um, it's same thing with like award shows for different like races, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? But I think all that stuff is really important too, because it's like, you know, no one's going to nominate this person because, you know, there's still a really sh terrible structure that exists with certain entities. <laughs> so you have to create spaces for people to like get recognized so they can, you know, make a living. And then hopefully eventually we'll get to a place where it's like, oh, everyone's doing great. Everyone cares about each other. We're all equal. Okay, now we can create an award show. That's just like, who's the best? And that is like a trickle down for everything, like when it comes to jobs and college and everything. But we're not all equal yet. So we need those different spaces and categories. 2020 is a year where anything can happen. And it's ironic that we have probably the most biased, sexist time in our country. But these are the times where some of the most amazing things are happening with Kamala Harris, yeah. Black is King, Amanda Jones. So how, how do you feel contextually just seeing what's happening in the world? What's happening, yeah. especially for women of color? What, are you optimistic? Are you blown away? What, what's your feeling? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's the optimism is so it's like always coupled with this like bitterness, bittersweetness, because it's like been such a tragic year. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll take the optimism, but I just hope, um, I feel like a lot of people are at home and having more time to think about things and think about the way things have been and in a lot of ways, 
And so they're wanting to uplift more voices. But yeah, I feel like, yeah, I hope this year isn't just like an anomaly of people kind of caring about black women or black people. Um, and so I hope this is like a catalyst just for more change and more activism and for people to continue to grow and reach within themselves to figure out how just to like care about each other <laughs> a little bit better. But um, I'm optimistic in general, but uh, I really, I really hope that, you know, we can, the greater population just continues to just pull people up and, you know, and support change. I really hope that's the case. Well, thank you very much, uh, Amanda Jones. And if you want to check out uh, the music of Amanda Jones, you can head over to Apple TV to check out the episode main in the show Home. Uh, but there's also several other shows. Uh, you've been on BET. You've been uh, working with Ava DuVernay. Can you share some of those shows that people can check you out? Uh, yeah. So um, it's 20s, Lena Way, BET, uh, Cherish a Bay, On Own. There's also Beef House, <laughs> Tim and Eric, <laughs> which is like kind of random, I know. Um, Adult Swim, there's a Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO, and that I'm working on now, I can't talk about, but it's Ooh. coming soon, and it's very exciting. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this 12th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you to Amanda Jones for being on the show. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. Your help allows us to be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod, on Instagram at Brown Black Podcast, and on our new YouTube channel at Brown Black Podcast. See you next week for another episode of Brown and Black. Some kind of moment.